If you are visiting with us again, welcome. My name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are uh, walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. And we find ourselves this morning in the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we will be looking at the first three verses. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. The title of the sermon this morning is Nothing Without Love. And for our worshipers in training, uh, our key words are love, gain, and nothing. Love, gain, and nothing. Now, if you've been with us the past few weeks, we've been walking through the various gifts of the church, the gifts of the Spirit, gifts that are empowered by the Holy Spirit for the building up of the church. And we spoke of the great unity which God's people enjoy while at the same time having a great diversity. The gifts being very diverse and yet the church being very unified. And so, in the context of what we've been reading in 1 Corinthians, we see that For the Corinthians, instead of the gifts being used to unify and build up the body, they were instead being used to splinter the body of Christ. Some were thinking of themselves higher or greater because of the gifts which they themselves possessed. And so Paul's aim over the last few weeks, as we've looked at, has been to show that all the gifts are important. We saw at the end of chapter 12 that he was enumerating the most important gifts and then from there was cascading down to eventually get to the gift of tongues. He de-emphasized this gift of tongues because it was, in the Corinthian church, the most showy of the gifts. And therefore, it was the most desired amongst the Corinthians because it became their means of boasting. And so Paul is saying, you don't all have all of the gifts, or you don't all have one specific gift, nor were you all intended to have the same gift. He gets there with rhetorical questions at the end of chapter 12, beginning in verse 29. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? And of course, the answer to all of those is no, And he goes on to say, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. So what way is that? What is the more excellent way that Paul is leading up to? And that is the very thing we will address in chapter 13. Now, before we get into the text, it's very important to remember that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 was written to the Corinthians. We must remember all that was going on culturally, all that Paul has already addressed, and the fact that this chapter sits in between chapter 12 and chapter 14 is very important. Remember, there was great division. They were splintering over, uh, we saw early on in the book, over who their favorite teachers were, uh, over the spiritual gifts they had, over various idolatries that they were engaging in. 
And there was great confusion amongst the body. Confusion over their liberties as believers and how far those were to be taken. How to deal with sin in the church. What the Lord's Supper should look like and on and on. And so there was division and confusion leading up to this we saw. And so it's no mistake that this great chapter, one of the most known chapters of all the Bible, is between chapter 12 and 14. And many want to use this chapter out of its proper context, especially what we will look at next week. But we must see what Paul is writing here as instruction, a rebuke given by the apostle to the fractured church at Corinth. And so in the context of the local church, this text will work like a sort of dynamite to expose all of our weaknesses and our failures and our sins in Christian community. It really serves as a specific challenge to the church that thinks too highly of itself. It's a tough rebuke to any church that thinks, we're pretty great, we've got it all together, everything is wonderful. And so... Somewhat ironic is that in a chapter so often used to make us feel good, in its proper context, it's shocking that it actually cuts us down to size and humbles us to our rightful place. So we will see what matters or what counts the most is not what most of us think. It's soberingly necessary for us to see ourselves in this text that we will read. So today we're going to look at Paul's introduction to the chapter, which is going to address the absolute necessity of love in Christian community. And then next week we will see what that love looks like, how that gets worked out. So first, I think it's important that we define what is meant by the Apostle Paul when he uses the word love, because the word is so misused and so misunderstood not only in our culture, but was also in the culture of the Corinthians. In the Greek language, there are four words for love. And you certainly have probably heard them before. Eros, phileo, storge, and agape. And the specific love that Paul is using here is the word agape. And this type of love is very rare in most Greek literature, but it's very common in the Bible. The New Testament writers imported this um, because there was no Greek word for love that adequately describes the love of God and the love of God that works through His people to love one another. And so they used this word agape to describe love because they didn't want to confuse it with man's understanding of love. And this is one of the most devalued words in the English language, and it was as well in the Greek culture and language as, uh, as the very same. Uh, let me give you a quote from Leon Morris regarding this word agape. Agape love is a love for the utterly unworthy. A love which proceeds from a God who is Himself love. A love lavished upon others without thought of whether or not they are worthy to receive it. A love that proceeds from the nature of the lover 
rather than to any merit of the Beloved. And so very quickly we can see that this sets love apart from anything else that we are accustomed to. True, biblical, godly love is unlike anything else, especially in human relationships. Usually, love is based on what is seen lovely in the other person. I love you because of something that is within you or about you that I find lovely. And so as long as the other person remains lovely, I continue to love them. But as soon as that's no longer lovely, I cease to love them. And then we take that definition or that understanding of love that it's based on the loveliness of the other person, and we import that type of love into the church. And we work our relationships out in Christian community in that same way. So as long as my brothers and sisters in Christ remain lovely to me, I will love them. But as soon as something happens which causes a break, I no longer love them. This is detrimental to Christian community. If this is how we operate as a church, we will not last long. And we will reveal something very seriously wrong with our hearts. Here's here's the problem. If our love in Christian community is based on whether or not others in that community remain lovely or lovable, we will all fail together. Why? Because it is inevitable that we will fail one another. It will happen. I will fail you. And perhaps many of you, I already have failed you. And some of you can think right now with specific instances when I personally have failed you. Hurt you, responded wrongly to you, been harsh or insensitive with you. But if we can work through that and maintain love for one another, then we show biblical love. But if we can't do that, then we're no longer a Christian community. We become a worldly, pagan-minded community that embodies the very evil that we've been rescued from. It is inevitable that we as human beings will fail one another. And the Christian's response to that is to love one another despite the circumstances. Remember the quote, a love that proceeds from the nature of the lover, the one who is loving, rather than any merit of the beloved. So as we think about that, some of us may have some prayer and repentance and reconciliation to do in this area. This is the very thing that Paul was pushing and driving toward the Corinthians. This love, this agape love is basic to Christian character. Therefore, it's essential to Christian community. 
how so? Well, before we jump here, look to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. The Apostle John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. And if we love one another, God abides in us. And His love is perfected in us. And so we see from this very explanation from the Apostle John that true love is a mark of true Christianity. We love because Christ first loved us. And if we have no love, there's an indication that we have no Christ. Now, we're not automatically saying that if we walk in sin, if we are not loving others as we ought because we're not fighting the flesh in some specific area or specific circumstances, that we are automatically an unbeliever. But I don't want to de-emphasize how high a benchmark that is set in the Scriptures for this love that shows us to be genuine in faith. A life void of love is no Christian life at all. This is very clear all throughout the Scriptures. This is what sets Christianity apart from everything else. Is that we are able to love one another in Christian community because Christ has first loved us. And in this passage of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is only reemphasizing what Jesus already made perfectly clear. In John's Gospel in chapter 13, we see the words of Christ in which He said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you and Uh, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So you see, true Christian community is marked by a love for one another. And it is so striking, so foreign that others will look at it and know that we are Christians because they see nothing else like it in the world. And so the problem in Corinth, and one that all of us can identify with on some level, is that there was an absence of this type of love. There was an absence of agape. The Corinthians were busy emphasizing their spiritual gifts and seeking the ones they didn't have. And all of this resulted in a loss of love for one another. They were fueled by pride. Some of them were very jealous. 
they were very selfish or they felt inferior. We see that in chapter 12. Those who were selfish, they had some spiritual gift that was highly sought after and they said, I don't need the rest of the body. I have this gift. And those who felt inferior said, well, because I'm not, and he used body part, because I'm not a hand, then I'm of no use. I'm not needed in the body. And Paul's whole argument is we're all needed as the body. The body cannot function without its proper parts. And so what is the antidote to this type of thinking? What is the cure of this type of thinking in Christian community? It's the nature of Christian love. John Stott said that this love, this type of love we see in 1 Corinthians 13, is a servant of the will, not a victim of emotion. So this is not movie style, hopelessly falling in love with someone. Okay, this isn't Jerry Maguire love. You had me at hello. No, he didn't. <laughs> this isn't a funny feeling. I can't stop it. I have butterflies and I can't help it. Okay, this is not this type of infatuation love. This love is not a victim of emotions. If it was, Jesus could never have commanded us to love our enemies. The only way you can love your enemies is through a work of God. The Holy Spirit directing your will. This type of love is an act of the will, a work of the Holy Spirit. So we can't mess this up. Paul is not writing about comfort and coziness and affection and attraction. He's writing about a spiritual discipline. It's a vibrant and strong type of love. It's a manly love. It's not soft and sentimental. And coziness and sentimentality do not equal genuine Christian fellowship. If our love one for another is based on coziness or being sentimental, that's going to pass. That will pass. It must be firmly rooted in the work of the Holy Spirit, giving us grace to love one another with agape love. Let's read verses 1 through 3 in chapter 13. The Apostle Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Some very strong words from the Apostle Paul. So life 
in Christian community devoid of this love is worse than nothing. Paul is saying that the greatest, most extravagant display of spiritual gifts cannot compensate for a lack of love in Christian community. He's saying, I don't care what gift you have. I don't care how well you use it. I don't care how many people acknowledge you and honor you because of it. If you do not have love, you are worse than nothing. This is very sobering. Especially because we've become automated to quantifying our usefulness and our viability based on our spiritual gifts. That's what we see culturally. We honor those who are more gifted in certain areas than others. And so that same idea enters the church. And so we quantify our usefulness based on how vibrant we perceive our gift to be. That's what's going on in Corinth. They're going around asking each other, what's your gift? Oh, mine's this and mine's that. Okay, And they were sizing themselves up. The same thing happens today. We see that in the church often. I'm thankful that Paul's instruction in this chapter is so straightforward because the application is a very difficult thing to accept. So let's look at three statements from Paul. First, in verse 1, Without love, I am a noisy nuisance and nothing else. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Remember, in chapter 8, verse 1, he wrote, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So, spiritual gifts utilized with proper love works to build up the church. The very thing spiritual gifts are intended to do. But spiritual gifts without love end up puffing up an individual. They simply work to fuel their pride and them thinking they are greater than other believers. And so what was going on in the church at Corinth was that they could speak various types of tongues. So that would look like if I can speak Chinese or Cantonese or Latin or Hindi or Hausa or Urdu or Farsi or French or whatever language it is that I am able to speak. Even if, Paul adds, even if it were to be that I could speak a language known only amongst the angels in heaven, but I have no love. I am a noisy, annoying nuisance. In context here, he's addressing ecstatic speech, the utterances of these languages by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. We've addressed that a little bit already, and we will hit that in chapter 14. But here's, here's the thing that's often missing from the debate regarding the cessation of the gift or the continuation of the miraculous gifts. And that is the necessity of love. We cannot deny that 
a position that says these miraculous things, these miraculous gifts, and in this context, the gift of tongues, by default, denies the sufficiency of Scripture. We can't deny that. But well-meaning Christians wrongly understand what that gift was and why it's no longer operative today. So we are called, first and foremost, to love one another. Will we hold differences? Yes, absolutely. And that is okay. But our Christian community goes beyond Ephesus Church. Our Christian community goes beyond those of us in this room. Our Christian community goes throughout the world. And there will be those we disagree with. We must love one another. Because the gifts of any sort, minus love, equals chaos. And that's the very thing we saw in Corinth. I believe this can also include eloquent speech or crafty wordsmithy. Perhaps a person may be a good orator or debater or a teacher, an explainer of biblical things. But if this is done without love, it might as well bang on a gong or beat a cymbal over and over and over. Do you like the sound of a continuously barking dog? We've all had that, right? At some point, maybe a neighbor who didn't take care of their pet. It was in the backyard and we just heard it bark all night long, over and over and over. It's not a pleasant sound. And so we have that same sort of idea. Continuously beating on a cymbal over and over and over. It's mind-numbing. It will drive us crazy. If we are without love and we exercise our gifts, then we might as well be equated with a continuously barking dog. So Paul is saying, you think you're a big shot because you can speak in some language? You think you're fancy because of your tongues? You don't have love and so you might as well beat a gong over and over again. The effect will be the same. And so without love, any spiritual gift is a nuisance. Secondly, he goes on to address that without love, I am zero. Look at verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Gifts without love are offensive. The biggest problem in the local church will never be the absence of spiritual gifts. God will give spiritual gifts to His people. The biggest problem in the local church will always be a lack of love. And without love, we are useless in effect, in and amongst the unbelieving world and in our service to God. The test that God applies to our gifts is not their expression or their perceived usefulness, but rather it's the motivation of our heart. Why are we motivated to use these gifts that God has given us? 
Without love, it doesn't matter how well gifts are received. Without love, they have no lasting value. He speaks of understanding all mysteries and all knowledge. Having an understanding of the things of God. Here he's speaking of a spiritual gift, and I think we can extend that to understand if we were to have good and clear and right theology and understanding of that theology and good study of that theology and our ability to articulate that, uh, that theology, and we do all of this without love, it amounts to zero. Big deal. The Corinthian problem is the very same as the American Christian problem. This idea that people with specific spiritual gifts were all of a sudden extremely important persons. But without love, they're not only unimportant, but Paul stresses and emphasizes the fact that they were zero. Imagine if your gifts mean nothing. That's hard to swallow. That you would walk in life as a believer and give of yourself to the church, give of yourself to other believers, give of yourself to the unbelieving world, and to do it all without love. And to find in the end that it means nothing. That God is not impressed He judges everything based on genuine, holy, devoted Christian love. And so without love, all of our service, all of our exercise of our gifts, all that we know and all that we do is zero. And thirdly, he says, without love, I cannot make it. Verse 3, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Imagine. Imagine giving it all away. Everything that you have. All of your money, all of your possessions, everything. Giving it all away. You might even be on the news or talk shows or whatever it is because you're a real genuine Christian in the eyes of others. But Paul is saying without love as your motive, it's completely self-serving. It's completely self-aggrandizing. And if that's not enough, he goes on to say, well, what if you were to endure a martyr's death? What if you were to die for the faith? Well, that could be an expression of foolishness or selfishness. We might look at that and say, that can't be. Why would someone give their life and yet not have genuine faith and love? Well, why do people blow themselves up as willing martyrs of a false religion? Because of a foolish belief that a holy and righteous God is pleased because of a selfish belief that they will gain great reward if they die in this way. 
We see it all the time. We see it every day. I've seen it with my own eyes. People willing to give their lives for foolish and selfish reasons, completely devoid of love. And without love, even a martyr's death amounts to absolutely nothing. Nothing will make up for a lack of love. Nothing will replace it. And so the very simple question that we have to ask is, what about us? What are we depending on? What are we depending on as a Christian community to continue on? To walk with one another and to walk ultimately and most importantly with the Lord. The problem for the Corinthians and most certainly the problem for us can be that these things, these spiritual gifts that they were so enamored with, thought to be so important, lacking love, become a source of righteousness. Seeking to find their righteousness in what they can do as opposed to what they are because of the work of Christ. And so they were looking at things like tongues and prophecy and all of these miraculous showy gifts that everyone was so impressed with and that became their means of right standing before God. We do the same thing. And certainly they wouldn't articulate that about themselves very much the same as we would not articulate that about ourselves, but we take things we do and credit them as our righteousness. I may teach Sunday school. I may do family worship every day. I may never miss church, even on vacation. I do this and that and this and that. And I always turn to those and say, this is the good stuff. This is where it's at. And yet the Scriptures call us to look to Christ as our righteousness. God the Father made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Your church attendance, your Sunday school teaching, your family worship will not save you. Are these things important? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely vitally important to the life of the church. Are they our righteousness? If they are, we will be numbered amongst those who come to Jesus in the end and say, Lord, I taught Sunday school in Your name. Lord, I fed the poor in Your name. I gave my used clothes to the thrift store in Your name. And He will say, Depart from Me. I never knew You, you workers of lawlessness. Because we do these things without love, without finding our source of righteousness in Christ, seeking to find our right standing in everything else, 
we may be called and numbered amongst those who Christ says are workers of lawlessness. But we must take hope. We must be assured that a true right standing with Christ is a constant reminder that He is our all in all. Yes, we will have times of lovelessness. Yes, we will have times of seeking our hope in other things as idolaters. But because Christ first loved us, He has rescued us. He has redeemed us. And through the Holy Spirit does a work to convict us that we might repent and continue to walk faithfully with God and promises us that to the end, He will walk with us. He will keep us onto eternity forevermore. And so true believers in Christ have a great assurance, a great hope in the righteousness that Christ has provided on our behalf. Because you and I cannot live up to God's perfect and holy standard. But praise be to God, that Christ did. And in our place, on our behalf, He paid the penalty that was due to us. Received the full wrath of God that we not have to. And in exchange, granted us full pardon of our sin and the great assurance of salvation because of a lasting, enduring righteousness that we did not earn, that we did not deserve. There's no greater joy. There is no greater joy. And may we live in that joy with love for one another and for the work that God is doing in the church amongst His people throughout the world. We will look next week at what this love looks like. How does that get played out in our lives? How does that get played out in our relationships one toward another in Christian community? Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the love of Christ. We thank You that because Christ first loved us that we now can love one another. We pray, Lord, that You would help us to see where we fall short as a community of faith in loving one another. Father, I pray for each of us that You give us great conviction to work out our spiritual discipline to love one another. Not love driven by emotions and affections, but love driven by our faith in Christ. True, lasting, enduring love, not because of what we see lovely in others, but because of what Christ has done in us. If Christ has loved us, if Christ has loved me, Wretched and unholy as I am, how can I not love others? How can I not forgive others when presented as unlovely? How can I see myself as greater? Father, break us 
of selfishness. Break us of pride. Break us of seeing others as unworthy of our love. Because we are unworthy of Your love. And yet we are recipients of it. Help us to bear more of the likeness of Christ that we would love each other with agape love. And that Your work, that the work of the kingdom would be advanced as we join one with another, arm in arm with our brothers and sisters across the world to see the name of Christ exalted. For He has done great things on our behalf. May we strive to make that known. Lord, You are good to us. You are gracious. And Your love endures forever. May we rest in that. May we find great joy in that. For Your glory forevermore. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.